And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us today on The Sustainability Story. Our guest today is Betty Zhang, head of USG Research at Credit Suisse. She and her team have written a lot on climate in the last couple of years and just released a new report uh, today on COP26. We're recording this as COP26 starts. We'll probably drop this maybe a week or so into COP26. And so we wanted to talk to Betty, uh, get her expertise on what to expect from COP uh, and the, the state of climate uh, in the world uh, after that. Thanks for joining us, Betty. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me here. Um, it, it's a pleasure and it's a really big topic that, that in, in impacts all areas of the economy. So love to be talking about this. Well, I, I forgot to mention, uh, Betty is a charter holder. Uh, I wanted to, wanted to give you credit for that. You had to, you had to suffer through that pain like the rest of us. Uh, but just tell us a little bit before we jump into the COP about you know, your journey, how you got here, uh, how you ended up at Credit Suisse covering climate uh, and your team. Sure, sure. So I'm responsible for US ESG strategy research at Credit Suisse, part of a global team that covers all the key ESG themes and sustainability um, super trends that's impacting um, uh, the world today. Um, I was actually a fundamental equity analysts covering the energy space for over a decade, both on the south side and the buy side, um, turned my own personal energy transition in early part of 2020, in part just shows where the world is going. Um, but two, I think the conversation requires more of a uh, pragmatic, um, bottoms up fundamental approach to talking about how we actually going to get there um, and talk about the transition on the fundamentals and what are the corporates are really doing to accelerate this change. That's great. Well, we'll, we'll get right into it. We, uh, I talked with our friend Mark Van Cleef uh, a couple days ago. That's the podcast that if, if people are listening in order, uh, we've got two. We wanted to talk to two different folks about COP, get two different perspectives about uh, COP and, and um, what to expect. So you talk about it in, in a lot of the research you did and the research you guys just dropped. Uh, but from, you know, from where you sit, what should people be expecting uh, from COP26? What are some of the top things to watch for? Sure. So this COP26 event is really the most important climate gathering since the Paris Agreement in 2015. The, the, the top focus areas um, are, are three things. We're looking at a consensus agreement on, on global carbon pricing. Um, second is climate financing from developed countries to into develop, uh, developing countries. And third thing is ambitions, looking for countries um, to not only escalate 
the their climate ambitions, but also come up with specific actions and policies. Um, but if we just go from avoid the, the nitty gritty details and, and think about uh, what what this event is actually trying to achieve, I think about it as a two prompt approach to tackling the climate. Um, the first thing is policies. Um, it, to, between where we are today to where we need to be, um, which is net zero uh, by 2050, 40% of that emission gap is coming from, it can be bridged by announced pledges um, right. that are not currently backed by concrete legislations and market incentives. Mm -hmm. Most of that is coming from OECD countries plus China. So in order to address that 40% of the emission gap, we need specific policies, action plans, like when do we phase out coal? When do we phase out coal financing? Right. The remaining 60% actually comes from uh, the developing countries. In, in order to accelerate actions there, we need climate financing. Um, which is talking about the $100 billion per year that the developing country is trying to gather in order to um, fund activities and the, um, uh, sorry, the developed countries trying to gather in order to fund activities in developing countries, um, but also talking about the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which is to set up an international carbon trading um, so that the emission reductions that can be done at a lower cost in a developing country um, can be sold to countries that are missing their target, a wealthier country where the marginal abatement cost is higher. And that is also another way to facilitate financing from um, wealthier countries uh, to, the, uh, to the less economically advanced. And so just to, just to to fill people in article six was something and correct me if i'm wrong so because my understanding you know may not be as, as as detailed as needs to be but this was first set up uh in the paris 2015 meeting but the details haven't been ironed out and it hasn't really been finalized and that's the hope of um a lot of people about cop 26 is that this this article six which that gets into the rules around global i guess voluntary carbon markets uh can be settled and so that that going forward is a, is a you know not the only piece but a big piece of uh, of of mitigation going forward. Do I have that about right? Yes, ab absolutely. And it's and it's all about the cost of abatement. Um, right. If it takes more, it, if it's more expensive um, for um, that incremental molecule of reduction in Europe. Um, when it comes to carbon, whether you reduce it in the US or Europe or Africa or Brazil, it doesn't really matter. So it's more about accelerating activities that's on the low end of the cost curve. Right. Um, and, uh, and But in order to do that, a lot of that low hanging fruit lies in the developing countries. And currently there is no mechanism to accelerate financing so that these activities can be done at a lower cost. Um, and, and this is what Article 6 is trying to achieve. Um, one of the, um, uh, the hurdles is, uh, is double counting so that right. if the remission is reduced in Brazil from 
uh, avoiding re re uh, deforestation or reforestation activities, so that 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 emission reduction is not being double counted between um, uh, where it happened and and the countries that's buying it. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's I'm I'm looking into right now uh, having an expert or two on about that just that issue the you know the voluntary carbon market because it's a bit of the wild west now, where there isn't global standard, much less a lot of market standards. Uh, the double counting issue is is a huge one. You know, the the assessment of what's being what's being promised is being delivered needs to be needs you know it needs to be audited. And you can't like you can't have a situation where like I I live in a, out in out in the boonies in a, a heavily forested area, and I can't say well well can someone pay me a lot of money to not cut down all these trees in my yard? Well, I wasn't going to cut down those anyway. It needs to be something that's a, in addition to what's already happening. So those rules need to be ironed out, and I think that that is another podcast for for another day that I'm that I will probably be. be um, uh, bringing people down the bike, but that, that's that's an interesting that, that's a great great point about Article Six, and and that and that's a um, a very important development at a government policy level, like uh, um, setting of the rules um, under Paris Agreement. A separate development is the voluntary carbon offset market, right. uh, which Mark Carney is um, and and the group is leading, and that's more to cater towards private sector. Right. You're seeing more and more corporates um, escalating their climate ambitions, talking about emission reduction. Many of them include carbon offsets. As, and uh, as your listeners may know, uh, there's questionable, um, many offsets have questionable um, additionality or proven um, reliable emission reductions over time. So in order for carbon offset to become a bigger part of the emission reduction, we need credible markets with verifiable projects. And that private market development is uh, critical to accelerating action from the corporate front. And all of it is, is about funneling money um, into areas that's at the low end or lower on the cost abatement curve. Yeah, we talked about a little bit about, you know, what to, what to expect from COP26. But from your point of view, from what you see, what does success at COP26 look like? What does failure at COP26 look like? You know, I've heard a lot over the past couple of weeks of trying to set a lot of expectations, maybe lower expectations of COP26. You know, that, that people are saying, you know, don't expect some huge headline that's going to save the world. It's a lot of this is, you you know, the problem, not really problem, but just the nature of COP26 is that it's it's something where people can reach, countries can reach consensus. And that is very hard to do with such a big group. So what you're going to, what you're going to end up with on consensus is not going to be huge, likely isn't going to be huge life-changing things. But that helps set the direction, and then different groups go off and work on different things. Whether it's a carbon market, whether it's electronic vehicles, whether it's funding for developing markets, and so on. So, what do you think? Uh, what do you expect success to be or failure to be? What are you expecting from COP twenty six? Sure. Um, so, one, I think it's hard to say a failure of an event. Um, certainly expectation has been 
lowered. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese and Russian and Russian presidents are not going. And there's still a lot of discord between uh, developed and developing countries. Um, but fact of the matter is, um, the climate action train has left the station and it's a matter of speed rather than um, and, and how rather than whether or not we're moving in that direction. Right. Certainly we're, we, we are. Um, the, um, from a, and then I think about it from a policy perspective, like what are the policymakers doing versus all the tension that's happening alongside and beyond COP26. Mm-hmm. From the policy perspective, Certainly, carbon pricing, but this international carbon market, um, and um, it is is the number one is the number one issue. And then the second thing is just coming to a global agreement on consensus on what needs to get done. For example, coal phase out. Um, unfortunately, as of this um, a recording, the G20 meeting. Um, has not come to a conclusion on when we are actually going to phase out coal fired power plants. So things uh, coming to these type of agreements are critical from the technicalities of mm-hmm. COP26. However, in con- conjunction to that, as you can tell, there we're seeing tons of headlines from financial market players, um, from corporates that are, that are coming out around the same time. I think a success will be seeing more granularity and specific targets from whether that's banks or asset managers or central banks about specific actions and 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 um, and targets that they're setting in order to achieve the net zero goals that have already been set. Um, like to give you some big picture numbers, we uh, of, of the global financial market, over 40% of the assets under management um, are already been um, pledged to net zero investment portfolios. That's a um, a material part of the global um, uh, investment markets. And and then over 40% of the banking assets have been pledged to net zero finance emissions. So entities from those groups and setting these type of targets um, to talk about what exactly they're doing by 2030 are incredibly important to drive the market incentives and actions for corporates to to shift towards that net zero direction. Uh, but the devil is in the details though. Because I remember, now, and I've seen other places as well, but I remember uh, one of the reports uh, that you guys put out, I believe, earlier this year was you took a look at uh, Climate Action 100 Plus and uh, uh, some of the companies that they talked to, that they engage with. And that's now up to like 160, 170, something like that. And I'd, yeah, and this discussion of how real or net zero promises is one that's happening a lot of places. Uh, but I remember the research you did showed that, that uh you know, the numbers weren't that great last year and they've improved a lot from promises. And you said 40%, you know, of the global GDP or global, I forget about the phrase you use, but global companies are using, you know, have a net zero promise. But when you drill down to, do they have milestones beneath that and strategy beneath that? So it's more than just a headline. Those numbers drop pretty dramatically. And I think that's that's from an investor point of view and from a policymaker point of view and from you know 
civil society point of view, that's what's really going to be interesting in the coming years is, is our investors going to engage with those companies and say, look, that's a very nice promise you made, but there's no details behind it. And, and how we get to those details. Like you said, that, that the, the track has been laid, the train is leaving the, has left the station, but it's going relatively slow. And how, does, how do we speed that up? And I think that's a part of it. It's, it'll be a really interesting place to watch those, the details on those net zero promises be fleshed out. Um, absolutely, you nailed it. Um, I think the corporates are the agents of change. They are ultimately the ones that are making the capital investment decisions for the innovation to uh, hydrogen or the, the zero emission shifts or, uh, or planes. So specific actions are absolutely critical. And to give you some uh, latest statistics from TCFD, um, out of the 1,600 companies that actually report on TCFD, which by the way, I think is going to become increasingly from voluntary to mandatory because um, all the regulators are standing behind TCFD as a framework. Mm -hmm. But where we stand today, um, only a third of the companies that report on TCFD provide climate targets. Right. And only a quarter have governance oversight um, at a upper you know, senior management and board level. And, um, and, and only 13% look at um, the, the resilience of the business under a one and a half to two degree scenario. Yeah. In effect, they're not really thinking about what are the potential changes to the business model um, should, the, should that scenario occur. And this scenario is the pathway that the world is trying to get, get, get on. So, so I think um, that's why I think corporates are actually under extreme pressure and will be increasingly so from all areas of the, uh, of the, of the economy, from, from their investors, from their regulators, from their consumers, their supply chains. Everyone is pointing to, to the corporates to accelerate that change and, and have tangible actions. But understandably so, um, because the policies are, are lagging, they're yep. not seeing the market incentive to, to, to make that incremental transition investment, many of which is lower return um, and higher risk. And, and the fiduciary duty of the corporates and, and all the investors is to, um, to invest in companies that are uh, generating adequate risk adjusted return. So there are a lot of conflicts things that needs to get ironed out that corporates are facing, which I really do understand um, uh, where they're coming from, but but actions are still needed. And I think um, that's why they're under that much pressure. And to circle back to the point of carbon pricing, this is where a global carbon price is really should be the way to go because the capital markets, there's only that much they can do about, about actions from the supply side. You can mm -hmm. disincentivize investments into fossil fuel um, projects. You can reduce energy investment, which, is, which has already happened. Um, and that energy investments are actually tracking to the net zero uh, scenario. So the supply is already assuming the world is on this net zero trajectory, but um, we are not seeing changes on the demand side. We, in order to um, 
to have an orderly transition, we do need the demand side to change. And that means EV switching to, um, uh, sorry, ICE cars to, to EVs, um, um, people flying less or, or uh, changing their diets um, the, and, and becoming more energy efficient, um, becoming more material efficient. All these things need to change on the demand side. And that's why a global carbon pricing is the most effective way to facilitate that. Okay, well, we're, I'm gonna give, I'm give you a second to take a, take a drink of water or coffee because uh, I've been making you talk a lot. Uh, but kind of switch into what we, what we wanted to talk about next was you know, beyond COP. You know, and and to set this up, uh, I think you set it up pretty well. You know, just where corporates are sitting, and it's a tricky game, a tricky tricky dance that they're that they're doing, because I think you're right. In a lot of places, they're saying, "Yeah, we can do this, uh, but we need cover, if you will, from policy to say you have to do this." And so it'll be interesting to see, like, where when we're talking. You know, the SEC in the U.S. is still considering what rules to have around climate and ESG disclosures. So when we get those, what happens? You know, does that give corporates some cover to look at this uh, in more detail? But at the same time, you know, that 13 percent number of folks that are actually, you know, having a having a business plan or business model discussion of this at the board level, you know, at, you know, when thinking of TCFD, you know, task force for for. Uh, uh, financial. Oh, I, I always mess up the, the acronyms. I, uh, it, uh, task force for climate. Climate related, related financial disclosures. Financial disclosures. Yeah, because it doesn't go exactly with the letters. Okay. Yeah, I always miss that one. I should have There's that. There's so lot. many acronyms in ESG. Yeah. You can. Uh, I I um, I have the same trouble as well. I'm thinking of having a podcast that's just having like three ESG experts on, and it's an acronym quiz, and see if see who can do them all. But anyway, but but that you know, there's that pressure from civil society. There's a pressure from policymakers, but policymakers need to give that cover, but through policy, through law, uh, and at the same time, companies rightly so are saying, look, we have to have a return on our investment. Uh, this is going to cost to have to track this information, to hire people to manage this issue, and so forth. Uh, and it was interesting, you know, the uh, Mark and I were talking some of the research they did about how. You know, if there is a real price on carbon, you know, and I think their research was like 100 to 150 uh, prices per ton of, of, of carbon, uh, what that would mean to your average company, you know, in, in different sectors are different, of course, uh, and different sectors have are a little more ahead of, of in, in that way than others. But that sets up nicely this discussion about carbon pricing. Uh, and, you know, about from your research, uh, I saw that you said about 22% of, of GD or, or emissions, excuse me, are covered by some kind of carbon market. Uh, and I'm, I was, I was happy to see that number because I've, I've been using the 20, 25%, uh, in my discussion. So I, I knew I was, I was about right, but that that price is, is far too low in many ways to make an impact. So talk a little bit about carbon markets, where we are, where we need to be, and where you see things going. Um, sure. So to give you a sense on, um, well, we, uh, as you said, 22% um, of global emissions is covered by any sort of um, pricing mechanism. And, and then price is very low outside of um, EU. 
um, China's emission trading system that just um, got launched is seeing average prices of only six to seven dollar per ton, which is right. really quite ne negligible. Right. Um, and and that's why, from a practical sense, the carbon border adjustment mechanism is so important to level the playing field between uh, countries that are pricing carbon to those that are not. Um, for uh, just to get a uh, background on. Uh, uh, CBAM, um, uh, Carbon Border border Tax Adjustment, um, it, it initially uh, will be covering iron uh, industries, so iron and steel, aluminum, uh, fertilizers um, from that are in, getting imported to EU, and they will be charged a price similar to the ETS carbon price. Now, just, just interrupt for a second. This is in the discussion phase right now at the EU, correct? It's not, this, it's not law yet? It's not law yet, but it's part of the Fit for um, 55 package, um, and okay. and EU is the only country that has not only signed carbon neutrality into law, but have a comprehensive list of package uh, of legislations um, right. to to talking about how, how we're going to get there at a different yeah. sector level. Yeah, I just want yeah, I just want to kind of set the scene for people. Okay. Sure. So um, from that perspective. Um, the countries that are most impacted will be the biggest exporters into EU. So Russia, China, um, even Turkey, um, the, the ones that are exporters, the largest exporter of iron, steel, aluminum, will see an impact effectively a carbon tax on right. those exports. However, that alone is only step one in order to make it effective and uh, um, and really enforce changes in these developing countries, you need more countries to adapt to this carbon border tax. That it's uh, because what they are exporting to EU is only a small percentage of the total export. So without other countries joining, joining in, they can circumvent it by say shipping the greenest product into EU, but still um, continue to produce uh, more emission intensive products and send it elsewhere. Right. So that's why uh, a greater support is needed. Um, fortunately, in the US, the Biden administration has um, walked back from their initial support for a, a border tax adjustment. And, and that is also something to watch a cop whether that these tones change and if um, a, a greater pressure is building for countries to step up on that. And uh, and what kind of you know the price? I think the last I saw the price in the EU was in the sixties or something to that effect uh, uh, for carbon, which is you know a lot higher than it was, but it's not to the levels that I think. What is what are the levels by twenty thirty? Uh, or is in the I think yeah. the, the estimates I see that by twenty thirty, and there's a lot of different research around this, but by 2030, you know, well into the 100 to 150 range is probably what's needed. And then by 2050, it's around 200 or something like that. And there's, and depending where you look, you'll find different numbers, but that's about what we're talking about is, is what the price on carbon would need to be. And so again, you know, that, that train has left the station as well, but, you know, in China's price in 2030, I'm sure will be higher than it is now. 
uh, in the East Coast and the West Coast of the U.S., you have you have you know some kind of carbon markets. New Zealand has a carbon market. A couple of other places are in the process of putting together a carbon market. So that 22% number will be much higher by 2030, and then much higher than that by 2050. But you know, where do you see the price going, or 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 is it going to get where it needs to be by 2030? Um, well, that's the biggest question mark in that we need to get to these prices that you talked about. Um, IEA is saying $130 by 2030 and right. over $200 by 2050. And, um, and those are the prices that's necessary to create the incentives in across the different sectors for action. Um, and, and the more stringent the uh, the emission reduction targets, right? If you have you're setting uh, like the California low carbon fuel standard, that's targeting just the transportation sector to reduce by um, a certain amount every single year. If the targets are stringent enough, and then the uh, activities necessary to reduce those emissions cost money, this is how you have. LCFS carbon price close to $200 at the peak. Now yeah. I think we're around 150 to 180, um, but that's how you get carbon prices higher yeah. is to set stringent targets. Yeah, yeah. I mean that'll be fascinating to watch in the in the coming years. And it, but uh, we and we we don't have all the time in the world, uh, so I want to get on to uh, what we want to talk about next. And we talked a little bit about this that, you know, and and anyone who's listened to this podcast or, or read a lot on this topic will know that, you know, policy uh, and regulation is going to drive a lot of the incentives that are needed to, to make the changes and, and that we need to. And that gets to how we travel, how we use energy, how we eat, you know, all those things will be Im impacted in, in the coming years. But we're financial markets people. Uh, and so let's talk about the gaps that the financial markets can fill uh, and what financial markets can do and what our profession can do around, around climate. Sure, so financial markets at the core of it is about cost of capital right. and market liquidity, um, making sure that the money is flowing and are incentivizing greener activities and moving away from emission intensive activities. So. Um, many players uh, go into this. I mentioned the banks and the asset managers earlier, um, but let's talk about banks. Um, they have set net zero finance emission targets by 2050, but what does that mean right. specifically? Um, as an example, JP Morgan has set a target to reduce their oil and gas lending portfolio finance emissions um, by 35% of scope one and two emissions by 35% um, and scope three emissions by 15%. All right, so that's the message they're sending to the oil and gas companies that you will have to um, engage on reducing your direct operating emissions. And you have to think about energy transition, which is the piece that's, that addresses scope three, mm -hmm. or else you will have a higher cost of capital Right. around JP Morgan, or they will uh, consider, you know, just doing less business with a company that are not meeting that. So that's a piece that the banks can do. Um, the asset managers, uh, we have heard uh, about the net zero investment portfolio, but what exactly um, the, the targets they're setting for 2030 to 
um, think about what type of investment that that they make. Um, two of the largest um, Canadian pension funds have came out with targets for investment portfolios um, to reduce the carbon emission of their uh, carbon intensity of their investment portfolios by 60 to 65 percent by 2030. Mm -hmm. Those are the specific targets that's coming out now and will be important to watch in the coming year or so. And I will expect those targets to accelerate to think about how are these entities judging the performance and selecting investments in order to um, get to their own targets. And, and, and these entities are under pressure from regulators as well, like the banks and the insurers are being pressured by central banks to assess, uh, to run climate stress testing. And in order to run climate stress testing, they need to understand their own exposure and mitigate it over time. And that's why I think even if the policy is lagging, the actions from the financial market will continue. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, again, thanks for your expertise uh, in, this, in this topic. I think with, with, with Mark's podcast and your podcast, I unfortunately think we're going to subjugate our, our listeners to about two hours of, of climate uh, podcasts. But I think they're up to it. And I, I, it's a great education for people. So I hope, they, I hope they avail themselves of it. But we wanted to close out with thinking about you know, the top sectors that people hear about. They're going to be impacted the most. By, by the changes in climate, uh, regulation, policy, uh, investment. Uh, so talk a little bit about those, you know, a couple of the high level sectors that we should be looking at in the coming years that we're gonna see uh, the most change in. Sure, so um, I say at a high level, um, the way to think about it is power sector is the most important. So um, even though the economics of uh, renewables are attractive versus the existing conventional power plants, but we need um, policies and specific target on coal. And we also need infrastructure um, uh, like transmission lines and grid update in, in order to accelerate the adoption of renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about uh, solar and wind, but um, hydrogen energy storage, um, and and to, to and and nuclear remaining in the conversation as well to ensure that reliability and cost effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So power sector is most important. I would say transportation is actually seeing the most momentum from policy and corporate actions. Mm -hmm. That the uh, the biggest um, uh, car manufacturer around the world are having very ambitious targets on phasing out. Um, conventional vehicles, and in, in some ways ahead of the policymakers in setting these ambitions. So uh, infrastructure is also important, and a lot of focus on mining um, and and the supply chain. But the ambitions are there specifically coming from the corporate world. Um, and I think building sector is most underappreciated. Um, yeah. energy efficiency, we need to double energy efficiency. Why do not all the buildings have LED lighting? And yeah. a lot of these adjust, uh, investments can be um, um, cost effective. And then if, if anything, they, um, the payback is very short because of the energy savings. We just need more education and more transparency of the data in order to accelerate actions there. And lastly, I would just end with, uh, you know, it's not just about carbon but there are 
the other greenhouse gas as well. So there's a lot of talk about methane. We need right. to cut methane by almost 50% by 2030. And that's um, low hanging fruit in, in the climate equation to get the oil and gas industry to reduce uh, fugitive emissions. And a lot of that is at a zero cost to these companies because they can sell methane. So um, many actions um, to come and, and collectively, it really impacts all areas um, of the economy. Yeah, I was I was going to say uh, that I, those are the you know those are the top three that that people think about when they see the headlines, and rightly so. You know that's where the, the biggest change is going to be. But there's there isn't going to be an industry that is untouched uh, by changes in you know the issues of, of climate and natural capital you know as well. But we're talking about climate today. Now you mentioned the banking industry and how you know finance of, financing is going to change. Uh, one that I'm seeing more and more of, and this is more in the natural capital world, but it's a climate issue too, is, is agriculture. How is ag going to change uh, and the way we eat? Uh, you know, and that's a big methane issue as well. You know, that's probably a different podcast for a different day. Uh, but to wrap things up, uh, I think I already said wrap things up, but I'll say it again. Uh, we want to torture our listeners a little bit more at the each of, end of each podcast by giving them a little homework. You know, we're, we're only talk to you uh, for 30, 30, 40 minutes or so. Uh, but for people who are more interested in what's going on in this in, with climate, with COP, uh, and to the work you guys are doing, what are some of the things uh, you're reading or you would recommend they read or listen to uh, to learn more about what's going on around climate? Sure. Well, I, I like the you said read and listen to because um, it, things are changing so fast and there are so many areas to cover that one of my favorite ways to absorb information is actually podcasts. There are uh, many good um, po uh, podcasts on, on climate and um, Col Columbia Energy Exchange is an excellent reference right. on that yep. as well as uh, uh, the, the interchange. There are just um, several really good climate podcasts about the um, leading ideas and and really innovations that's going on in the space um, and um, certainly I, I do a lot of reading on and just following the leading edge companies on um, the next advancement of technology but I also think it's important to set the fundamental understanding of why uh, some of the challenges that we're seeing in the energy transition. So I, I really appreciate Vakalev Smil's um, uh, books on energy transition and energy and civilization. He talks about energy density and energy return on energy invested, which is really fundamental metrics to understand why um, solar and or biomass are uh, uh, ultimately a less efficient form of energy than fossil fuel, mm -hmm. um, but because of lower costs, it is, um, um, it, it's, it's more difficult to transition from a low, uh, from a high density to a low density energy source. And, and it really sets up the understanding of what, why something works and why some, something doesn't. And I think it's a great foundational books to read. What's his name again? I haven't, I haven't heard of him. Um, Vakalov Smil. Vakalov's, what's his, spell his last uh, name if you could. S-M-I-L. Okay, Smil. Okay, I got, yeah. I got it. And okay. uh, he's on the Bill Gates must read list <laughs> on climate. So, okay. um, yeah. All right, that's great. 
Uh, Betty, thanks a lot for your time. Uh, thanks for your research. Uh, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.